Hear the word of God from Isaiah chapter 53 and Matthew's gospel chapter 8. Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 5. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And now to Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man of authority, a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again, church family. I hope you're doing well today. I pray that this word today from Matthew can be an encouragement to you and a challenge. We're in Matthew 8 in our series through the book of Matthew with the lens of the book of Isaiah. And we have a lot to cover today, and we also have communion, so I'm just going to dive right into the message. The first words of Matthew 8 link the miracles that follow with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. 
Matthew must therefore desire his readers to see a connection between the Sermon on the Mount and chapters 5 and 7 and the miracles that follow up in chapter 8. So let's begin by giving a quick review of what we've seen in Matthew up to this point. In chapters 1 and 2, Matthew gives a record of the matters which relate to the birth of Jesus. This account of his birth was designed to show the reader how Jesus was the promised Messiah. He was a seed of Abraham and David. He was born in a messianic line. Four times in these two chapters, Matthew indicates that these events fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. And already we saw indications of Gentile involvement in the genealogy of the Lord and in the Magi who came to worship Jesus. In chapter 3, we're introduced to John the Baptist, whose appearance fulfills Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. John preached that the kingdom of God was at hand and called upon men to repent of their sins in preparation of the coming of the Lord. At the same time, he rebuked the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were being hypocritical. And they were challenged to produce fruit that proved their repentance. The Messiah was near. And while John baptized with water, the Messiah would baptize with fire, is what John said. Jesus then came to John for baptism. And after addressing John's reluctance, Jesus was baptized, at which time the Father and the Spirit testified to the fact that Jesus was the beloved Son, the Messiah. In chapter 4, Jesus was, he successfully resisted Satan's temptations in the wilderness the way Adam and the Israelites didn't. And after John's arrest, Jesus left Nazareth and came to Capernaum. Here, Jesus called some disciples to them and began preaching, teaching, healing, and attracting large crowds. This set the stage for the Sermon on the Mount that we've been in for the past few weeks, in Matthews 5-7, through in which the essence of Jesus' teaching was set out. He taught very much like Moses did to the Israelites when he came down from the mountain, preparing them to be a new nation, a new people entering into the promised land. Essentially, Jesus articulates the relationship of his message and authority um, to the Old Testament law. On the one hand, Jesus corrects the misinterpretations of the law that occurred in his day, errors held and promoted by Jewish religious leaders. They focused on external um, obedience. Jesus focused on the heart. They thought that it was wrong to murder. Jesus thought that it was wrong to think of your neighbor as worthless or to allow broken relationships to go unreconciled. They thought that it was wrong to commit the act of adultery. Jesus thought that it was wrong to think adulterous thoughts. The Pharisees had turned the Old Testament law into a system of works. Jesus taught that no one could be saved by living up to the requirements of the law, even the scribes and Pharisees, the most devoutly religious Jews. Verse 20 says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are shocking words that we spoke about last week, words that informed the crowds that many of those who assumed they might be going to heaven weren't going to go there. What was even more shocking in the Sermon on the Mount was that Jesus said who would be there, the, the poor in spirit, the mourners, the gentle, the merciful, the prosecuted. True religion was not a matter of good works, but of faith, not a matter of externals, but of the heart. This is what Jesus was trying to get at. True religion was not something that the religious leaders could control and dole out to the or withhold. It was all about Jesus. He was the authority. So he warned people of the broad way that leads to destruction and about false prophets. At the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount we spoke about last week, Jesus emphasized that true faith is not merely a matter of words, but of actions. It's not those who merely hear who are saved, but who hear and heed, hear and build upon that, who build their confidence and their authority upon what they believe. 
At the end of chapter 7, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Guys, I believe that these verses which follow Matthew 8 serve to undergird the authority of our Lord. His words that he says here, this authority was validated by his works. So this section of chapter 8, in my opinion, has three main points that I want us to get at. That has to, it has a lot of points, but I want you to think about these three main ideas as we look at the stories here in chapter 8. That the miracles affirm the word of Jesus. That's what these miracles are doing. They are affirming the word of Jesus. Two, they're showing that the kingdom was for the Gentiles and not just for the Jews. And three, they showed that the type of kingdom Jesus was the king of. So the three main points, the three main ideas that I want you to have in your mind as we're diving into these stories is this. Number one, that they're affirming the words of Jesus. Number two, that they're showing that the kingdom is not just for the Jews, but it's for the Gentiles. And number three, they're showing the type of kingdom that we're a part of. And it shows the type of king that we have. The first story is about a man with leprosy. And verse 1 of that story seems to indicate, once again, that this is tied in to Jesus coming out from the Sermon on the Mount. And the first healing is about a man who is dreadfully ill. This man has leprosy. He's a leper. Now, leprosy could be a few different things that's most likely referred to, or a few different things it could be referring to, but most likely it's referring to a condition that revolves around the nervous system that causes tumor-like growth, disfigurement, skin discharges, and tissue degeneration. Leprosy was as bad as it gets. It was incurable and apparently deadly. It was a kind of living death with many sweeping implications. One was declared a leper after a series of tests were performed. And once declared a leper by the priest, a leper was cut off from contact with all of society. He had to display marks of mourning, as if for the dead. He had to tear his clothes, uncover his head, and cover his lips. And when someone drew near, he must call out, unclean, unclean. He had to remain outside of the camp, outside of the people. Naturally, the leper had no access to the temple or even to Jerusalem. Leprosy was indeed a living death. And it doesn't get really any worse at that time. And this is one of the reasons, guys, why I love this account of this healing so much. It seems that while Jesus was in one of these Galilean towns, this leper just seemed to work up the courage to approach him. Seeking to be healed. And I'm, you guys got to understand, this was far from typical. This man should have been kept at a distance. This man should have been nowhere near where a crowd was. This man should have been yelling out, unclean, unclean. Didn't have, shouldn't have the audacity to approach the crowd. But he came. And I can almost see the crowd kind of melting away. There's this crowd following Jesus, and all of a sudden, this unclean one comes coming up. And the crowd's melting away, being like, ooh, I don't want to be near that one. I don't want to be, get what he has. And this leper approaches Jesus. And the people must have stepped back and they said, okay, I'm not going to force this guy, but there's no way this guy should be coming near Jesus, but I don't want to touch him to force him away. And the people stood aside, curious to see what was going to happen. And it says in verse 2, the leper prostrated himself before Jesus and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Lord. The man had it right. He was right to call him Lord. He said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He was right that Jesus can make him clean. He was right that whether the question of whether he's the authority, this question that was asked in chapter 7, this man knew the answer. He is Lord. He does have authority. He does have power. 
He can heal him. Do you guys see this guy's proclaiming what everybody else should have known? This guy's proclaiming what the Pharisees should have seen. Jesus is king. He is Messiah. And he's answering the question from chapter 7. He, can you back up the proclamations that you made? Are you really the king? Are you really the Messiah? And you hear Jesus' response. This is, I am willing. Be clean. I mean, can you imagine the gasp for the crowd when Jesus actually reached forth his hand? Matthew makes it so clear that Jesus purposed to touch this man. He made it very clear that he reached out and touched him. He didn't have to touch him. But this man who might not have felt the touch of a human hand for I don't know how many years, Jesus could have healed him with a word. He could have healed him with a thought. But Jesus intentionally reached out and touched the man that was unclean, untouchable. Showing to the world that Jesus can make clean what is unclean. And Jesus can determine he has authority on what is clean and unclean. He has authority, but not only does he show the world, but also shows this man such compassion. I'll dirty myself for you. I'll go where you're contagious for you. I love how Jesus does something weird here. He goes like, okay, don't tell anybody what happened. And then just go back to the Old Testament, go back to the priest, and then show themselves and present the offering that you're supposed to offer. What's he talking about there? Well, tucked away in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, this is chapter 14 in the book of Leviticus. And this process by which you, a priest could declare a leper cured. And if you're cured from leprosy, then you present this offering. And it's just a kind of random, obscure passage, and honestly, probably hardly ever used, right? How many people are ever healed or cured from pretty much an incurable disease? So there's tucked away in this Old Testament is a passage that finally gets to be seen, and he goes, says, go to the priest. And why? Well, I believe because when he goes to the priest, the priest can, has no ability to say anything but you are clean. He's, the priest is the authority that says he's clean. He can declare it. And so the priest then can say, what is happening? And it can be a testimony in and of itself. And you can see that the only one who can cure, the only one who can heal is Jesus. And I want the priest to validate this miracle. And so the question of whether or not Jesus' authority is answered, he is Lord and he has power of healing and of the body. You see, this miracle is affirming the words that he said that he is authority, he is king, he is Messiah. Then we go to the next story about the centurion. And this healing is described in considerable greater detail than is the healing of the leper. It's nine verses opposed to three. And it's, in my mind, must be significant. And the first note that I want you to understand, the first thing I want you to see is a central figure in this story is the centurion. Not the one who's getting healed, that's the centurion's servant. But the main central figure in this story is the centurion itself. And centurions were commanders of soldiers. They were commanders that had 100 men underneath of them. Century, centurion, 100 years. So far, you guys with me? For those of you about to take the SATs, this is good Latin, prep, word prep, Greek, whatever. They were there in Israel to maintain the peace. That was their job. This is all, remember, Israel is under Roman rule. And so the Romans were, had centurions there to maintain the peace. But then the other thing that I want you to understand here that's so significant is that the centurion was a Gentile. And by Gentile, what that means was a non-Jew, somebody from another country, another ethnicity, another people group from the Jewish people. 
Now, mind you, this, a reasonable guess is, and this, many scholars have said this, and I believe it's to be true, is that the centurion's servant might have been a Jewish man. Right? There seems to be a lot of scholars who think that's probably a possibility because how did, you know, the, probably the Jewish servant who, who told the centurion, taught him about Judaism, and then also talked about Jesus because Jesus' probably name often came up in briefings because the, their job as centurion was to maintain security over an occupied land. So if any potential troublemakers came up, they would probably be under careful scrutiny. Has anybody ever seen the, the show The Chosen? Really good. I mean, excellent. I believe season two is about to come out. Hopefully, I heard that's almost ready to start happening here. But in season one, they have a good picture of this where it would make sense if there were rabble-rousers, troublemakers, people causing a, dis- a disturbance, the Romans would probably know about it. And so there's reason to believe that the centurion probably knew about Jesus, probably talked about Jesus to other people, but he shouldn't be one who would go to Jesus, but for some reason, he did. Not only did he go to Jesus, but this is something so incredible. He didn't go to Jesus for himself. It's one thing to think, oh, well, I'll go to desperate measures if it's for myself. But for your servant? And so obviously the centurion cared deeply for this servant. And we believe that this servant might have been the one who taught him about the ways of the law and about who Jesus could have been. And he says... He's deeply moved by the suffering of his servant and this Gentile believed Jesus had only come to bless his people, the Jews, but he wasn't seeking anything. And maybe he went to Jesus thinking, okay, Jesus, you can only heal Jewish people, so I'm not asking for me. Maybe I can then go to you to ask for my servant. So he goes. And it seems that this centurion was caught off guard when Jesus answers this incredible answer. He goes, I will come and heal him. And that's Jesus' answer to the centurion. He says, okay, I'll come and heal him. And the centurion's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're going to what? He was all too aware of a barrier that the law created between Jews and Gentiles. And you can only look at the account of Peter in the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 to understand the magnitude of this barrier. They're separated. They could not go in. Having a Gentile, having, uh, going into a Gentile's house was defiling oneself. You're supposed to keep yourself pure and separate. And this centurion wanted Jesus to heal his servant, but how could he expect Jesus to defile himself by entering into his home? Little did he centurion know that Jesus had just touched a leper. This is not a deficiency in centurion's faith. It was a humble acceptance of his status as a Gentile. And this is so different than the request of the centurion that's found in the royal official in John chapter 4. In that case, the official specifically asked Jesus to come to his home and heal his son who was about to die. The centurion here pleads with Jesus not to come to his home. And there are probably two reasons for this. First, he felt he was unworthy for Jesus to enter into his household. Why should he presume to ask Jesus to defile himself by coming to his home? The second reason is probably there was no need for Jesus to come to his home, he says. The centurion recognized the Lord's authority. He says the Lord's authority was so great that he need not come to his home. I love the way he says this. The centurion himself, being a soldier, says, hey, listen, I'm a soldier. And when I tell my sergeants or my troops to go do something, they do it. When I tell them to jump, they say how high. They do what I tell them to do. Well, I acknowledge your authority, Jesus. You're higher than a soldier. So if you just say it, it's going to happen. 
So don't need to defile yourself. Just say Jesus and it's going to happen. What a proclamation of authority that the centurion is making. Think about that. He's saying, I'm a soldier, so I have authority over my troops. That makes sense. There's a ranking system. He has power. But this guy is saying, there's a ranking system. Jesus, you rank higher than death, and than disease, than paralyzation, than life. It's a bold, bold proclamation the centurion is making. He says, the way I have power over my troops, you have power over disease, over life. The centurion gets far more than he asked for. Result of his faith, remember that this centurion asked nothing for himself, only for his servant. He receives two of the most incredible blessings uh, which, which a man could ever hope for. One, centurion receives the highest praise I can even think anyone ever receives in the Gospels. It says, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Can we just stop there? What a statement, right? Could you imagine that said about you? I, mean, I know it can't be. I wish it could be said about me, but that's not my, that's not my reality. I'm more with the other, other guy who says, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. That's kind of more where I relate to. But what a statement, what a cool statement. But the, the, the big thing about this statement isn't that it was said, that's really cool that this guy had this statement, but it was said to a Gentile. It was said to a Gentile. This Gentile's faith surpassed that of any Jew in Israel and it received commendation from the Messiah. Second, this man received the Lord's promise of inclusion and fellowship more than he could ever imagine. He didn't even consider himself worthy to have Jesus pass through his door. But then look at what Jesus promises him in response to faith. Listen to this. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This man cannot conceive of Jesus entering into his door, much less sitting at his table. But Jesus tells him that the kingdom that he'll be sitting at is he's going to be rubbing elbows, bumping elbows with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said there'll be other Gentiles will be found theirs. What a blessing. On this side of the work of Jesus on the cross and having the complete canon of scripture, now that the New Testament, now that we have the full gospel in the New Testament, we can understand how this will all come to pass. Centurion received the blessing of the offspring of Abraham. Genesis 12, one through three says, now the Lord said to Abram, Go out from your country, your relatives, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. Then I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. And I'll make your name great so that you will exemplify divine blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, but the one who treats you lightly, I must curse. And all the families of the earth will bless one another by your name. So are we surprised then to see that the Lord promises blessing to this Gentile? It's always been his intent. He's always been intentional about bringing the Gentiles in so that this table wasn't just Abraham and Isaac, but it was all the Gentiles in the world, that the blessing wasn't just for the Israelites. It's not about one's racial origins. It's not even about one's works. It's not about one's ethnicity. It's not about one's tradition or history. But it's about faith in Jesus. And that's what makes a true offspring of Abraham. Romans 4, 13 through 17 says this. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not fulfilled through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if they become heirs by the law, faith is empty and the promise is nullified. For the law brings wrath, because where there is no law, there is no transgression either. 
For this reason it is by faith so that it may be by grace with the result that the promise may be certain to all descendants, not only to those who are under the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the presence of God, whom he believed, the God who makes the dead alive and summons the things that do not yet exist as though they already do. The centurion who sought the Lord's mercy toward his servant came to him on the basis of faith. And it is this faith which not only healed the servant, but saved the centurion. The goodness of the gospel is for all nations and the entire world will be blessed. Salvation is for all, regardless of race, race, ethnicity, and nationality. Are those not the sweetest words we could ever hear? What a wonderful Savior. And from there, we have the story of Peter's mom and then the healing of, of, of mother-in-law and the healing of many others. And what does Peter's mother-in-law have to do with the previous two miracles? It almost seems out of place, right? Like, she had a fever and he healed her fever, so like, that's it? I mean, does that seem a little, like, anticlimactic a little bit, right? Like, ooh, a fever. What's the point of this? Well, in this account, she's healed without saying a word, without asking for anything. And this parallel accounts in Mark and Luke both indicate that others did petition Jesus to heal her. This is, of course, another kind of, uh, it's not merely a headache. It literally, when you read the original text, it literally says, thrown in bed with a fever. And guys, what this healing of mother's, Peter's mother-in-law contributes is the additional evidence that po- he has the power to heal any issue any sickness that occurs, but more than that, guys, I want you to understand this, that he has a willingness to do so. That his heart is to heal, even a fever being laid, a woman laid up in bed, that his heart even cares for that. You get the leper, right? That's horrible, that's a living death, but a woman laid up with a fever, yes. Even that, he has a heart to heal. And some of you guys are struggling. Some of you guys have issues and it's tough. But sometimes you stop thinking. You start feeling guilty, right? You start feeling, well, that, that's, my issue is not that bad. It's strong to you and it's important to you. But you compare it to others and you think, you start feeling guilty. You're like, God, I'm trying to even pray for that. Does God even care about the little issues that I'm struggling with when there's starvation in the world? There's genocide. And there's racism. There's so much happening. Does my little issue even count? Can I tell you this? Yes. God's big enough and he cares enough. And it's the nature of his kingdom. He cares. Uh, this healing, he, he heals immediately. She gets up and begins to serve the group. And I want you to understand this, and I love this, this idea here, is that the healing of Peter's mother-in-law is that Matthew emphasizes this paragraph is where this woman's healing be quickly began to spread. And by the time they began to spread, this large crowd started gathering at Peter's home. And in response to that, Jesus healed them by healing all who were ill. He cast out demons with the word. And so with this passage of healing, in this passage of healing with Peter's mother-in-law, he brings up Isaiah. In Matthew 16, 8, 16, it says, when it was evening, many demon-possessed people were brought to him. He drove out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. In this way, what was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet was fulfilled. He took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. Because I want you to understand this, is this healing of Peter's mother-in-law led to this spreading of word, and the spreading of word led the people coming, and the people coming to see, and then Jesus started healing many, and started casting out the demons, and this led to the prophecy being spoken, that this is being fulfilled. Guys, I want you to understand that even though it seemed a small thing, 
when they brought that request to Jesus, he cared enough to heal Peter's mom, but he used that healing to spread the word in that community. And that spreading of the word in that community led to mass people getting healed and led to people seeing that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah. This is a citation from Isaiah as a larger part of the prophecy. This is what Isaiah 53 actually said, and it was read earlier. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I love how Isaiah links sickness with sin, and he should. He prophesied that when the Messiah comes, he will heal diseases as well as heal and forgive sin. And so it's one of them when Jesus comes to earth and identifies himself as Messiah, he's healing people. He's healing a range of issues and sicknesses. He makes it clear that his ability to forgive sin is closely linked. He says, not only can I forgive sin, I want you to understand that what's easier, he actually says that later, he says, what's easier to say you're healed of your iniquity or healed of your sin or forgiven or healed of your sickness or forgiven of your sin. And these miracles as Jesus is performing them are showing the people what type of kingdom Jesus is the king of. He's also showing them what type of king he is. Most Israelites at that time were anticipating this Messiah that was to come. They were all looking for him. All the Pharisees, all the Sadducees, all the Israelites were like, Messiah, when are you coming? Messiah, when are you coming? But what they were hoping for, what they were looking for, was this mighty military leader, kind of along the lines of David, the guy who can slay giants, the guy who can carry a sword and fight off people, who raises up his mighty men to conquer and to fight, who would overthrow the Romans. But here's Jesus, and he's proclaiming himself as powerful. He's proclaiming himself as authority. But then he says, but this is the type of king I am. I'm a suffering servant who leads a kingdom that advances through healing and justice. My people, that is the kingdom that we're a part of. We're a kingdom inaugurated by a suffering servant, not a conquering warrior. May we be willing to then advance this kingdom the way our king did, by serving and loving and healing and sacrificing. Bob Deffenbaugh says the following, I believe the key to understanding this passage is found in its relationship to the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was defining his relationship to the law. The law could not save men, but only condemn. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus had great authority, even the authority to correct contemporary errors in their interpretation and application of the law. The people realized this. Matthew 8, 1-17 dramatically demonstrates some of the major themes Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. In particular, this text underscores the relationship of Jesus to the law. The law was unable to save, just as it was unable to heal. The law could define sickness and health, but it could not produce health. It could only condemn the illness. Jesus, on the other hand, was able to heal sickness, just as he was able to forgive sins. This was his authority as the Son of God and his calling as Messiah. Yet he did not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. Matthew first introduces us to a leper, a man whose condition alienated him from others and from access to God. He was deemed unclean, but what could the law do for him? It could only condemn him. And if by some miracle he was clean, it could only pronounce him clean, but the law could not heal a leper. Jesus could heal the leper, and he did. It's like our sin. The law can define our sin and expose it, but it cannot remove it. 
The law declares what righteousness looks like, but does not provide the means for us to live in righteousness. Only Jesus can remove our filth and our sinfulness and provide us the very means to live in righteousness. Jesus sent the leper to the priests in obedience to the law. He did this as a witness to the priests and let them recognize that this leper was cleansed and that Jesus did it. Let them ponder who Jesus is. My people, can I tell you this? May you ponder who Jesus is. If you don't know who Jesus is, may you see all the others in this church and around the world who have been healed by Jesus. And may you ponder who he is. He is an authority. He is the one that cleanses us. The story of the centurion is here, and, and being a Gentile, the centurion does not wish Jesus to any defilement by entering his home. And this, this story, this man urges Jesus not to come. He sees himself as separate from the blessings of Israel. But Jesus informs him that he will be seated at the table with the patriarchs of the kingdom, with the heroes of the faith. Jesus removed the barrier between Gentiles and God and between us, between mankind, between man and each other. He brought the two together as one. He says in Ephesians chapter two, therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and call them circumcised by those who call themselves a circumcision. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which, the God, with which God lives by his spirit. Christ removes the barriers between God and man and also between the barriers that separate men. Jews and Gentiles can enter into God's blessing by faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah. Jews and Gentiles can become one and it's only through Jesus who has the authority to break down that barrier and that hostility. Law couldn't do it. Nothing else could do it. And even in our current day and age, it is Jesus that we need to break down barriers in this world and in our society. He died on the cross of Calvary for our sins. He was buried and raised from the dead and now sits at the right hand of God. And he is the one that is king over all and authority to tear down all barriers. And in Jesus' healing of Peter's mother in the law and subsequent other healings, Jesus brings attention to the means and the move of Jesus as king. He is a suffering servant. And his connection to Isaiah 53 by Matthew was so intentional. He wants his original readers and all of us to understand that Jesus was a suffering servant king and his kingdom looks like one of healing. My people, can you not miss this, please? For some strange reason in America and for the longest time in Western Christianity, we've developed this kind of idea because we've been kind of the majority religion, because we've been in positions of power, that, that, that Christianity kind of mixed with power, mixed with success. 
mixed with authority in that way in the world. But can I tell you something? Christianity and the suffering king has always been one that was inaugurated through suffering, advanced through suffering, and through servanthood. We as Christians in this kingdom that we have, and Jesus is showing in his miracles here, and are called to be advantages of his kingdom, not by conquering and not by having positions of more authority, but by be suffering servants for the sake of the kingdom. For people who bring forth healing in the world by setting the oppressed free, by providing sight for the blind, and being a suffering servant for others. Can you hear that by people? That's what we're called to do, follow the example of our king. And I'm not saying, oh, suffer, follow, should I just go and suffer for no reason? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, are you willing to do what it takes to heal the sick, to free the oppressed, to fight for justice, walk, seek mercy, love others, and be a servant to all? That's how the kingdom advances. That's how it was inaugurated. That's how, what the miracle showed. And that's how it will continue to advance in this world. I promise you this. This kingdom of Jesus will not advance through guns and might. Will it not advance because we have mightier swords than others? It will, will advance and will continue to advance when we passionately, aggressively love others like ourselves. So may we do that. This passage shows us that Jesus is our authority. He is the Messiah. The miracles affirm who he is, affirm his words. This passage here shows us that the gospel message is for all. It's for the Jews and Gentiles, it's for all races, all nationalities, all peoples in this world. And this passage shows us that this gospel message, this kingdom, is one that was inaugurated by a suffering servant king who cares for healing, who cares even enough for, for just the littlest issues to the biggest issues, who loves and sacrifices passionately. And so we need to be healing others as well. Do you hear me, my people? And we love in this way and seek the kingdom in this way. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this, God, for this healing that you provide for us. God, that you have authority over life and death and healing, God. But more than that, God, this healing is symbolic of your authority over sin and disease. God, that you have this authority over death itself. So God, as you say, as you heal us of our iniquities, that you heal us of our sin issue, ultimately that you provide new life for us. So we thank you for the work of Jesus. We thank you for your great plan from the very beginning was to always have this gospel news that is good news, a blessing for all nations. That's always been the case. That's always been the plan. That's been your plan from the very beginning. So we thank you for that plan. We thank you for that great news. And God, may we be instruments of your kingdom's advancing. God, by the way we love. God, by the way we heal. God, by the way we suffer by the way we serve by the way we fight for justice help free the oppressed walk in mercy kind of live humbly with you will you move mightily in our midst in jesus name we pray amen at this time in our service we are going to partake of the lord's supper also called communion and we Join with our Christian sisters and brothers throughout the world as we participate in this meal. Lawrence earlier talked about 
just how it's a time to come and confess and to just remember our dependence on Christ and remember his death and his resurrection and his suffering and the new covenant that we have in him. And now I I do want us to take a moment to just reflect on this new covenant that Jesus has made with us. The whole book of Isaiah that we've been looking at is the promise of the new covenant. All the ways the old covenant could just expose the sin, just expose the darkness and the brokenness and the best we could muster up, the Davids and the Hezekiahs and the, the Jacobs weren't, just still fell short. But in Christ, in his new covenant, we are new creations. We are people who are born again. We are forgiven people. We are people with a hope and a future. We are people of the kingdom of God. Just let that soak in. Just take a deep breath and just remember who you are as a child of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So at this time, Waypoint Church, I want you to take the bread and just take it. And take in the broken body of Christ, the suffering servant that has made us free. Now take the cup and drink it. And remember the forgiveness we have and the new covenant we have in his blood. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this meal. I know this is not ideal and I know that We want to do this in person and we're going to do everything in our power to start making that happen next month. But God, you called us to take this meal to remember. And I thank you that wherever we are, you are with us and your promise is secure and it's for us. And we are new covenant people, people of the kingdom, forgiven people. May we live in that forgiveness. May we live in that light. May we live in that hope this week. We give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.